I'm Stephen Adams. This is Down to Doug. I'm, I'm miffed and peeved. Hello and welcome to a new episode of the Down to Dunk. This is your temporary host, Michele Berra. And I thought I had a, like a solo pod today, but Brett Dawson of The Athletic was so kind to join me in for answering your amazing questions. Yeah, I really was just going to let you answer the questions and then I was going to steal your answers for a story that I'm working on. But then you were like, no, you can't do that. You have to come on the podcast. So I felt like I was like pressured into it, but... <laughs> Let's just go with I'm happy to be here. Okay, uh, that's fine. I mean, yeah, um, I kind of forced you in, and um, but that's, I think. That's what okay. friends are for, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, the question was on the rotations that OKC will have around uh, the backcourt that is kind of forming right now with SGA, Chris Paul, and um, Dennis Schroeder. But I think I have, like, a very important question that I want to answer immediately. And it's clearly not about basketball. It's about food. And so we'll start with that. It's a, it's a little bit gross, but I think it's worth an answer. What candy goes best with bacon? Assume you must eat a candy with said bacon. So none is not an option. This, this is a question from Benjo Dave. So I asked like a follow-up a follow question, like what is considered a candy Uh, is this just American candy or is chocolate allowed? Uh, and Banjo Dave told me that basically chocolate is an option. And so my, my pairing with bacon is a fancy dish with like some veggie on the, on the bottom, like peas cream or something like that. Then a slowly roasted bacon with some, uh, a tiny slice uh, layer of chocolate. Uh, maybe with some pepper on it, um, and that's that's it. What's your pairing? <laughs> that is that is very European of you. That is like a really. <laughs> I'm like I don't know, like a payday bar. I think anything that's like heavy on caramel will go fine with bacon because you get the sweet, salty mm -hmm. kind of thing going on. So like you could pretty much do anything. You could like heat up a Snickers bar and sprinkle some bacon on it, and I would be fine with that. That okay. that works fine. Okay, so crispy bacon. Yes, that's fine. Yep. Okay. All right. So, um, to let's let's now answer some real basketball stuff. Then we have another food question, but I'll, I'll, I'll we'll have it later. And I mean, the first question that that came in was from Kobe Zeller, and it's about like the nature uh, of future draft pick. He's, he asked basically, do you think that future draft picks are an over or underrated currency as an asset in trade talks? Um, it was kind of a of an interesting question to me because it's really hard to basically isolate the value of a draft pick because if it's your own, it has a certain value. If it is from someone else, it has a completely different value. If it's tomorrow, if it's like in the future. Yeah. So I don't think there is a way to, to isolate like what is the value of a draft pick. I think it's the more we go, like we are far removed from the Boston trade, the famous Boston and Brooklyn trade. I think that first rounders are kind of like properly valued. Like no one is giving away first round picks for nothing, I think. Right. That is correct. And, and like, I think the, the bottom line of draft picks is 
if you're going to go into a rebuild, like you'd rather have all of yours and a bunch of someone else's than not. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you said, some of these draft picks are in 2024 and 2026 and they belong to other teams. So you have very little control over how good those are. I think the main thing when you're rebuilding is at some point, if you're going to have a, a real honest to goodness rebuild and you're not just going to package this stuff for other players at some point, you have to be bad enough that yours have excellent value and not just to trade, but to draft, you need to be bad enough that you get really high picks so that you give yourself a chance to get franchise players in the draft. And that's a point that thunder will probably maybe not get to this year, but we'll get to at some point in this rebuild, they'll need to be bad so they can assure that at least their first round picks are going to be high value. Yeah, I mean, um, you, you you never know. Like, it's it's almost like trying to project today uh, how much valuable a certain stock uh, uh, will be um, five years in the future. No one will know. Like, Nokia right. seemed a pretty good investment in the early tw- early two thousand, and then it's a it's a awful one today. So it's it's kind of hard. And um, and yeah, the only thing that you you have control on are your own and. You can build with picks made by someone else uh, because it's possible, but it's not uh, very common. I mean, you can get Jason Tatum, uh, but it's it's hard to get Jason Tatum and other players just with someone else's pick. And so I think that, as you said, sooner or later, you need to be lucky in the draft. And and that's, that's basically... Um, one of the like, I mean, I got like several questions about the future of the Thunder and how you can manage, how you can um, increase the value of CP3 and Gallo. And one of the questions was uh, Austin Cernich asking, if you're running the team, what restriction are you putting on CP3 and Gallo to keep them healthy? Because I think, and that Austin here is is like dead on um, about the fact that if you are not keeping those two player healthy. The value that you can retain from them it's either a very a very negative one uh, if you're yep. talking CP3 or basically nothing in Gallo because if he gets hurt you are not trading him you're just letting him expire and you don't extract basically value out of it. Yeah, I, and that's one of the biggest questions about this team and, and when people talk about how good they can be, what is their ceiling? Are they going to really chase a playoff spot? Like durability is a big issue with those two guys. They are guys who have not only are, are getting on in their NBA careers, but Gallo's just he, he's not that old. He's just had injury problems. Mm-hmm. Um, he's missed a lot of games. I think last year is the most he's played since he was injured, uh, since he missed the full season with the ACL. But mm-hmm. he misses games and Chris Paul misses 20 to 25 games a year on average. And so I do think you're going to see some and and. This factors into some of that rotation stuff that we started talking about that we will talk about at some point. Like, it's going to factor in that you're going to need to rest those guys. You're going to need to rest them on some back to backs. You're going to need to manage their workload a little bit um, because you're right, particularly with Gallinari and even with Paul, who's, you know, he's had an injury history and everybody knows he has an injury history. But now with that contract, if you have a, another significant injury at this stage of his career on top of it, he becomes much, much harder to trade. And so, you do have to be very cognizant of that, I think, with this team. And this has not been a, a staff or a team that's really worried much about managing minutes. Westbrook wanted to play all the time. They kept his minutes somewhat under control. They didn't play him 35 minutes every night. Paul George, I, did he lead the league in minutes? He was up there. Yeah. Um, that's not been a thing that they've had to do a lot with. They've played Steven Adams, I think, probably too many minutes and should have yeah. managed his minutes a little bit better and, and maybe will uh, this season. We'll see. Um, but I, I do think that's a really important piece of this team. We, we probably haven't talked enough about. Yeah, and I think that 
Um, we had a question like that last year, um, probably at the end of the season, where someone asked, why is Noel not playing? And I think that when you have Steven Adams available, it's hard for you as a coach to not play him. As much as George, same, same with George, same with, with Russell. If you have them there, uh, it's hard to keep them below 30 minutes. It's very hard. Uh, either you are blowing your opponent out, and that's that that may happen, or um, it's it's very hard again. So to me, the resting pattern should really be about you're not playing tonight. You're not suiting up for the game. Yeah. You are on the bench, um, inactive for the team, because this is the way that smart teams, uh, or at least teams with players that are getting old, are operating. LeBron is taking time off um, and he, he's doing it in chunks. Like he used to sit like a week or two in the winter to be ready for the summer. Uh, Kawhi was managed like in a very precise way, like no back-to-backs. Some, someday you are not playing because of resting patterns. Uh, there are like mathematical tools that are nowadays used to um, forecast injuries and to, to have the best... Uh, resting pattern possible. So I do think the the solution with those two players and with Steven uh, is to play them less uh, in, in in terms of numbers of games. Because yeah, like in a single game, it's, it's not that relevant. I agree because they talk a lot about their formula. And this is not uncommon. A lot of teams do this, that it's the, the medical staff says, here's who's available. Here's how much you can play them. And that decision is reached kind of in conversation with Billy and with the player. So everybody's kind of engaged in that conversation. I think at some point when you're dealing with this kind of team, you have to take the player out of the equation to a certain extent. So if he's going to play and they say, we feel like you can go 35 minutes and he agrees, fine. If he thinks it's a little bit less, also fine. But I think you've got to make some decisions on not playing those guys independent of what they want for entire games. So you have to say, you are not playing back-to-backs uh, for the first half of the season, or in, maybe in some cases you're not playing the second night of a back-to-back in any game this season. Um, and I think you've got to, to, to a certain extent, you have to make those decisions when you are in a mode of like protecting assets in addition to not just trying to win games. I think sometimes you, you can't let the player be too involved there. And I think that's easier when you don't have people like Russell and Paul who, if they demand to play, you sort of just have to play them. Yeah, and... And I wonder if this can be also a question to be asked to the staff. Like, uh, are you comfortable on having a certain style of play that is not dependent on who's on the court? Yeah. And because because this is is really what what is about. Like, Toronto had a very specific identity even without Kawhi on the court. And then with Kawhi, they were doing those things and Kawhi basketball, uh, which which is like high so heavy and take the ball and, and get me a basket whenever you can. Um, and so I really think that these plays are all in good teams, being able to sustain uh, a certain kind of basketball, even without a certain player. And with a guy like Westbrook, might be hard, but might also be <laughs> helpful like to have another identity. With Steven yes. Adams, it's surely easier than that because Noel can slide in and do similar stuff. And so yeah. you don't have to reinvent yourself. Yeah, I, I think, you know, a lot of people will point to that. And I think it's a logical thing to say as like part of the reason they dropped off when Westbrook wasn't in games wasn't just there's an obvious talent drop off. Yes. It's that you're playing a completely different style when he's not in the game. There's really no way to replicate what he does. And he doesn't 
you know, we'll see as I think we've talked about this on, on, on dream team recently. I think when he goes to Houston and there's a whole other thing established, he may have to adapt a little, but here he was never really going to adapt. He had so much say in the way everything happened. He was just going to play the way he played. I don't think you could have changed coaches and, and changed his approach. So he's going to play his style and that style is almost impossible to replicate when he's off the floor. And so you see point guards playing kind of smaller roles, his backup, would play, you know, X number of minutes or play alongside him some. But part of getting shooter was the idea that maybe you could play a similar style to Westbrook being on the floor when he was off. But it's really, really hard to replicate. I do think that's easier with this team. It's not easy because Chris Paul is obviously a guy who plays a certain way and is a really good player. But they need to establish that because, as we said, I think there need to be times when Chris Paul isn't playing. And you need to be able to play a, a style that's at least relatively consistent, whether he's on the floor or not. Yeah, and like subbing for Gallinari will be easy since there are people thinks that basically will will basically average fifteen four and five. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, sure. I mean, I'm joking. Really? I mean, I'm joking. It would be awesome if he does, and maybe he surprises uh, with an awesome training camp, and he will get real minutes. Uh, but no, uh, if I have to, like James Harden, average I think less than ten points in his rookie season. So yeah. I mean. You know. Yeah, I don't see him being a big factor, but they've got, you know, they have other, you know, they're going to play essentially with a stretch four starting yeah. and then they'll have yeah. stretch fours coming off the bench, whether Patterson is here or not. Muscala is going to play yeah. a similar way. As you mentioned, Noel can do some similar stuff to what Steven Adams can do. So I think offensively you can have an identity and we I mean, it's, who knows what they're going to be doing, you know, in the backcourt and especially mm -hmm. the kind of small forward third guard spot because we don't know anything about who's healthy and who's going to play. Um. But I think they will be somewhat interchangeable there because you could end up having, you know, if you start Chris Paul and Shea Gilgis-Alexander, for example, you could have a bench that's Dennis Schroeder and Terrence Ferguson. Those guys should be able to do a lot of the same stuff. Yeah, and since we 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 uh, we are talking about rotation, uh, this was the question that, um, that got Brett into the podcast, basically. Uh, from Thai Han, uh, how do you see the rotation between CP3, SGA, and Schroeder? Uh, if we play this team the, the whole 2019-2020 season, do we make the playoffs? Um, well, I wasn't sure that OKC was a clear-cut uh, playoff team uh, with Russell Westbrook and with Paul George uh, due to his shoulders condition because we don't know uh, when he's going to be back on the court. And so I have no idea if OKC will make the playoffs. Uh, Chris Paul is a great player. Uh, he was a top 20 player last season. And Gallo was very, very effective. Our common friend, Fred Katz, voted him as a most improved player of the year. Yeah, and, I think he and, had Shea, a and Shea is good. Yeah, yeah. And, and Shea is very good. So maybe they will make the playoffs. I don't know. They have, the, they have a chance, I think, to fight for a playoff spot in their current uh, with the current roster. I do too. I mean, I think, you know, what you have to look at is how many playoff spots are there? Who's falling out from last year? Who's getting in? You know, the Lakers are going to take a spot. Um, yeah. The Pelicans are going to fight for one. There are going to be yes. a lot of teams who the Spurs could fall out. Who knows? There's, yeah. there's, there are going to be a lot of variables. And I think too, we just don't know how good some of these other teams are, let alone, we don't know how good the Thunder are yet. Um, but like, I don't know what New Orleans is going to be yet. Like, we don't really have a great feel for Zion. If he's excellent, they have a chance to be quite good or probably Dallas. fight for six, seven, eight. Dallas is going to be a team that's certainly going to fight. They're going to be in the mix. So there's going to be a lot of teams fighting for a couple of spots at the at the bottom. If they have a relatively healthy year and they do keep this team together through, 
you know, at least the trade deadline, I think they can kind of evaluate and see where they are and see if they mm-hmm. want to push it. Um, you know, if trades are available for those guys, uh, Gallo and, and Chris Paul, they're probably going to trade them. I mean, I think they will, they will look at that if there are good trades there and if not, you know, they'll evaluate it, but the, I, they have a chance. Certainly they are not, a, they're not a bottom of the barrel team. This is not a classic rebuild. They are in the process of tearing it down. They're not tearing it down right now. Yeah, uh, back to the rotation. The point guard rotation is the question, is the fifth question of the um, of the season, I think, for OKC. Uh, I don't think there is any issue uh, about SGA playing with either CP3 or, or Danny Schroeder. I think, uh, and maybe most of the fans that didn't watch enough Clipper basketball, as, as I did uh, until like two, two weeks ago, <laughs> and I watched like a ton of, of Clippers. Um, and so... Like SGA played a lot of time as a shooting guard. He yeah. played a ton with with Lou Williams, with Pat Beverly. I can argue that he played almost his entire minutes uh, with like either Beverly or Lou Williams. So you can say he was the, the de facto shooting guard, not the point guard. And so I think one of the best qualities of, of, of Shea is that he can be a good ball handler when he wants to, when you when you need him to, and he can play off the ball. And learning how to play off the ball, not just spacing the floor, but moving off the ball uh, with players like Schroeder and, and CP3 that can give you the ball in, in a d- dynamic way is a is a very interesting lesson that you can learn. Uh, it started last season, and I think that another year of playing off the ball and being a secondary ball handler, like McCallum when when he's in on the floor with Lillard, is a very interesting experience that Shea can have playing alongside a real point guard. Yeah, it's interesting. So two things. One, I never know exactly. I love basketball reference. I never know exactly how much stock to put in their playing time estimates because they're a <laughs> little bit... They can, they can, there's some, there's some nuance there. Um, so it's hard to say like a percentage of minutes that they played at this position, but they do it. And it's, you know, it's generally fairly accurate. And their position estimate for last year says he played 50% of his time at point guard and 49% at shooting guard with just yeah. a little bit of small forward time. So he has certainly played a lot there. The other thing is I, I talked a little bit of a spoiler alert for a story that I'm, I'll have up uh, soon. I talked to John Calipari recently about Shazier at Kentucky And one of the things that they work with him on is that he really was a scoring point guard when he came in. He was less of a guy who who looked to distribute. He had that talent and they wanted to bring it out of him. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is kind of by his nature. He's a scorer. He likes to um, he's a change of speed guy. He likes to put the ball on the floor and go and he can spot up a little and, and make a three point shot. He likes to score. Um, wasn't a huge scorer either in college or the NBA because some of that is attempts. But he's I think he's comfortable in a position where you tell him go score. Um, and so that that's natural. That's a natural fit. And I think just the way they're constructed, if you want to get your best players on the floor, it just makes sense to play him a lot at the two because un- until or unless you make a trade, you've got two really good point guards and you just can't. It's not like you're just going to sit him. He's got to be out there for for the majority of the minutes. Yeah. The thing that scares me is what happens when CP3 and Danny Schroeder plays together. That that yeah. I, I really have no idea how to how to pair those two. Yeah, it's going to be strange, and I don't know that they'll do that a ton because you know that's that's not a lot of size. It's not kind of traditionally what Billy does, but they'll do some of it. I think I, I do think that the you know the the fact that he played Schroeder and Westbrook together a lot is some indication that he doesn't mind doing this. Uh, but that's a little bit different. Russ is a much bigger 
guard, uh, more physical. Paul is a, a strong guy, but he's not a uh, he doesn't have a lot of length. So I don't think they'll do a ton of those two guys together. But I am interested to see it. I think that's that's kind of a intriguing thought as to whether he'll try that. The one thing we know about Billy for sure, he wants multiple playmakers on the floor. He wants as many guys out there as he can have who can put it on the floor and create a shot either for yeah. themselves or for other people. And so that's why I think he'll be very comfortable with Paul and Shea or mm -hmm. Schroeder and Shea. But I don't yeah. know how often we're going to see some combination of one, all three of them, maybe occasionally, uh, yeah. and two, the, the two point guards. Yeah, I mean, and it's not just, just Billy. It's really the league that is going yeah. towards a direction where if you have two ball ender on the floor at the same time, you're better off. Um, and it's like, for example, Carly in, in Dallas, he's a guy that always wanted two yeah. Two ball handlers and maybe three. Um, I think that the issue with that duo, uh, Chris Paul and CP3, is not on the offensive side. CP3 already played an entire, uh, two entire seasons with a with another ball right. handler, and 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 Dennis did once, as you mentioned. Uh, the point is, I'm really scared about the defensive side. Like, yes. there's no way that that lineup will close, and and it's not that I'm worried about closing with other players. In fact. It would be nice to have Shea and, and Ferguson and, and other um, like wings out there instead of Schroeder. The point is, how is Schroeder going to take this? Like right. last season was Terrence Ferguson. Yeah, it was a better fit. And still, I don't think it was completely fine for him to not close in games. And it was not like um, every everyday things. Like sometimes Schroeder would close games. Right now, I don't see him closing any games if you are trying to win. If you're trying to play and see what happens, maybe yes, but uh, it means that you're not closing with one of uh, either Shea or Ferguson, and I really want to give them minutes when it yeah, matters. I agree, and I think some, some of that too is what does Robertson look like, but closing with Robertson, even if he's healthy, is a little fraught sometimes because of the free throw shooting stuff, so mm -hmm. that, that gets a little tricky as well. Um, I think they need Shea Gildas Alexander on the floor a lot when they end games, if they in fact are trying to win. And I certainly think that Ferguson is a guy who can make a jump shot uh, and is a really good wing defender is a guy that you want out there. It, it does create some problems. Chris Paul is a good defender. I mean, he's not what he was, but he tries, he's engaged. And I think he's pretty smart. Um, Shooter is not a great defender. And so if you have the two of those guys out there together, they're just, Chris Paul has some physical limitations and yeah. Dennis is not a great defender. So you got two guys out there who, you know, if you got bigger point guards, you can attack. There's a lot of different things you can do if those two guys are sharing the floor. Yeah. And on top of that, I know that Chris is a good defender. I remember him playing Durant, Kevin Durant, probably yeah. one of the best defensive performance of a point guard against like a seven feet guy uh, like, like KD uh, in 2014, it was. I think 13 or I 14. Right. I don't remember. Um, he really put pressure on the run. But to, today, I don't want him to guard a good player. Right. I want him to be good on a player that is not so good. So he yes. can take advantage of that and being a plus defender. Uh, and so that leaves you with Dennis Schroeder guarding someone meaningful. Like last year, Westbrook was guarding someone meaningful. Uh, and that can be an issue. It's not always an issue. But if you have to switch or to defend, to hedge on 20 pick and rolls a game. That, that is not a good thing for a guy that has um, problems with his muscles in the lower part of, of his yeah. body. And so yeah. I, 
it's it's tricky. You don't want Chris Paul to chase anyone on screens and stuff like that. Right, right. That's what Ferguson is for. And yeah. and I haven't seen a whole lot of Shea to know defensively. That's something I really do want to watch is some defensive work of his. You you could probably tell me better. I don't know how he'll do with that, but I, I he, probably better than Schroeder just in terms of chasing a guy off a screen and, and then handling a pick and roll. Well, I watched like four games as of late uh, of him chasing Clay Thompson. And this is kind of unfair because Clay is <laughs> right. probably one of the best. Uh, but he wasn't so bad. Like yeah. he was late sometimes. Uh, but he wasn't like completely out of position. He pickpocketed uh, Durant a couple of times. Um, he has very active ends and he's long. So that, that always helps. Uh, I do think that he can be, especially if um, he trains a little bit on feet speed and if he's a little bit bulkier, uh, maybe he can be uh, a plus defender. He, he, was, he was already, according to some metric, a plus defender for the Clippers, but that takes into account the fact that Lou Williams is a, is a bad defender. And so yeah. uh, all those metrics are a little bit skewed. Um, and so I think that he has to play a lot of defense against a lot of good players because this is part of his development. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he, I, the one thing people have told me about him consistently as I've talked to people is that he is at least engaged defensively. Yeah. So, he, and, and he's a guy who wants to get better at anything he's not good at. And so I, I do think that those are, that's a nice foundation to start with. He's a guy who wants to improve and he will try to improve. Now there's people just like their offensive games. Guys have defensive ceilings. They're only going to get so good, but, but I don't know how far out his is. And I, I think he's got a lot of room to grow there. Yeah. Um, so since we are talking about Shay, there are, I think, four questions about him that I will read immediately. Some we already touched, but maybe well, we will get some more um, open points that we want to tackle. So Jesse Smith asks, watching SGA highlights, I'm now convinced he's the best player in the league. Realistically, what is your evaluation of his game and what uh, can the Thunder expect from him next season and beyond? This, I think, we already tackled. Uh, ben Pennington, are there any young Thunder players on the roster that fit particularly well with SGA long-term? I think Ferg is close, but can he score enough? What kind of player should they pursue to fill out the roster? I think that this is a very interesting point. Um, yeah. Because OKC has Terrence Ferguson that I think fits uh, okay with Shea, not perfectly. Uh, I'm not entirely comfortable on thinking... Um, uh, a backcourt of him and Ferg. Uh, I'm more comfortable if I put another wing player that can handle the ball. Yes, that that's the same for me. I think with Ferg, and we talked a little bit about this, I think on Dream Team last week. I know I've talked about this in the last week, so I apologize if I'm repeating myself to anybody who's listened to both shows, but he he fit well with what they had in the sense that he could spot up and sort of be in the corner uh, and then he was a good enough defender to make up for some of the things that maybe they had some deficiencies, for example, some of Westbrook's deficiencies, whatever. He he works w very well as a wing defender and a spot-up shooter. He's like a 3 and D guy. As you move forward, because he's not great at putting the ball on the floor, that's where you have some questions about how he fits with what they're going to do. So I, I do question whether a backcourt of those two guys is a super successful backcourt because I, I do think you want another guy who can create. But like you said, if you find that at the three, and certainly the three is a – you know, I think it's a position of need going forward, depending on how they view Baisley, and and probably he's going to be more of a four. I think mm -hmm. we'll see. Um, but like I, that, that's something they would need to address if those two guys are going to be playing together long term. Yeah, uh, I think so too. And, and th there is another question that I think leads into this one, and we can tackle this as um. Well, I'll first read it and then and then I'll comment. Uh, John Groom says, 
who are the players in the league under 25 that in your dream world you'd have on the Thunder? Along those lines, what is the ideal player to put alongside SGA based on his talent, areas, and growth? Uh, and this to me can be read as uh, what are the current player, but, right. but even like in the future, like what kind of player OKC should search for in the draft? Uh, and what I have a first comment, and I don't think that SGA is a player you work for uh, in the sense of roster building. Like, I think that Shea has a very, very good, uh, um, like, uh, thing about his play is that he can gel, he can mesh with anything. Yeah. Like, he's so versatile in terms of uh, you want him to play um, a little bit more point guard? You can. You want to play him as a secondary blender? You can. Uh, if you, if he develops the right way, he can be a plus defender in your team. And so... Is so malleable as a as a player as a prospect that I think you search for your A guy and Shea would be okay with him. Yeah, I think so too. So, like for example, if you could get, and I'm not saying you can, but if you could get like an elite young point guard. So if De'Aaron Fox became available to you, you don't you don't turn away wow. from that because you have Shea Gilgis Alexander. You know, no. you would say, okay, well, De'Aaron Fox runs the team, and we have Shea Gilgis Alexander too. I think he's a very important piece of what they have going forward, Shay. Like, they view him as very important. Mm -hmm. The Clippers did not want to give him up, and they very badly wanted him if they were going to have to give up Paul George. But I agree with you that that is part of the reason why they wanted him is because he just does so many different things. You can have you could have a, a true shooting guard mm -hmm. and another point guard, and you could throw him out there and do some stuff. If one of those guys can guard the three that's on the other team, you can play three guards. Um, I think they may do that some with with uh, him and with Terrence Ferguson. So and and yeah. another one of those point guards. So I agree. He he can just do a lot of different stuff. And I don't think he's going to be a superstar player. You know, like the idea of 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 building around a guy is you build around a superstar. And I don't think that's what he is. But I do think he's a guy who has some inherent leadership. I think he's a guy that young guys will want to follow. I think he's a really good piece to have as you sort of build a rebuild a foundation. Um, but yeah, I don't think you necessarily say, oh, well, we've got this point guard, so we're not going to take X. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, that said, um, I, in one of the games I watched, um, it was game four against uh, the Warriors when he erupted for, I, I think, 20-something, maybe 30 points. Um, oh, he was great in that game. He was so in good. that game, you saw all the things that he can do because the, the, the greatest part of him playing that game and being awesome was he didn't took bad shots. Like he was making good choices. He was scoring the ball. And, and basically like having that for a guy that is barely 20, it's incredible. Like yeah. he was taking pull-ups whenever the pick and roll defender go was going on, was like yep. going under pick or he took a three whenever like that guy sagged him, I don't know, five feet. This awareness and recognition of what is that the given defense is giving to you and what is something that you can do. Because like it's one thing to read the defense and try to do something that is not on your arsenal. The other thing is trying to read the defense and making an advantage for you, creating an advantage for you or for your team. And that is right. something that Shea was able to do in that game. It was really impressive. Yeah, I, I, there's a lot I like about him. When I say I don't think he's going to be a superstar, I have a high standard for what I consider to be a superstar. Yeah, but he's a, he's a really good player. I talked to some people 
at summer league who were saying, you know, like the, the crazy thing for people who have watched Westbrook play is he's so different from Westbrook in the sense that so much of what Russ does is built on speed. It's and it's kind of one speed. It's just go fast and go hard. Yeah. Shea is a very much a change of speed guy. That's what he does. Yeah. He can gear down and then gear up to get by you. He can kind of get his shoulder into you and go around. He gets by people really effectively. It's just a very different way of doing it. Yeah. Um, yeah. We had like another question about um, Shay that I want to read. We partially answer that or probably completely um one bam dr clam uh long time listener of down to dunk what do you think is the best way to construct a future backcourt with sga that we already answer i favor more looking to a secondary playmaker over a prototypical two um also and this was the part of the question that they want to read pick one pair to give up long term coffee and bread or wine and cheese oh my goodness Yeah, this, this is extremely That's hard. That's impossible. As, a, as an Italian, I cannot say wine. So I will give up coffee and bread. <laughs> Because I, oh, as a, like, I will be banished by my country if I say uh, wine and cheese. And so I have to keep wine in my diet somehow. I, the problem with this is that if I, if I choose one of these two categories, I can't have pizza anymore. No, no, no. Because no, no, I can't no. have bread or I can't have cheese, right? I have to... No, no, yes, you can have pizza without cheese. Oh, well, that's not pizza at all. Well, um, oh, wow, that, that's, that's extremely false. <laughs> that pizza, like the first pizza that was made in Naples, uh, not uh, like Fred thinks in America because pizza is an Italian dish, um, they, they had basically two pizzas. One is Margherita uh, for the queen right. of Naples uh, with mozzarella. But the other one was... Um, one for the sailormen that couldn't bring cheese with them uh, because it's stale uh, very quickly. And so it was just tomato with some anchovies, I think. Okay. So I have to give up. If I give up cheese, I'm giving up wine. Yes. Those, yes. Okay. I guess I'm keep, uh, I guess I'm keeping coffee and bread because I can't give up coffee. That's the one I just can't not have. So um. I can, okay. If I give up wine, I can still have bourbon and beer. So I guess I'll survive. I can still have tea. It's not the no, same, though. Or Red Bull. One of the two. That's a, a terrible... It's an excellent question, but it's a terrible yes. thought. Yes. So I have two more questions, then I'll let you go. Uh, one is, uh, I think, deeper. So we'll, uh, we'll leave that as uh, your, our last question, because I think um, we have to discuss a little bit what happened with the staff and... What are like likely candidates to fill out that, those spots? Um, a quick one, ride the storm. Who do you think will be the top three scorer on this team? And what do you think they will average? I, I don't have, like, I have no idea. Uh, let's say that at, in February, let's put this in February. I think that Chris Paul will be the leading scorer at 22 points. Gallo uh, around 18 and Steve around 14, I think. That's That's as good a guess as you can possibly make. I definitely would have picked those three guys in that order. The number is hard. It's hard to guess a scoring average, but like I'm fine with that. Maybe, maybe I might go a little lower on Chris Paul, 20 or 21, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I think that's about right. And it, it should be those three guys. I'll be surprised if it's not, if those guys are, you know, healthy and playing and still here. Well, if Shea goes into the top three, this is a very good news. Uh, yeah. Because like, I kind of want him to shot a little bit uh, more from three-point range because 
like he was a good three point shooter, but the volume was extremely low, like one point seven. Yeah, one point seven. Yeah, one point seven shot per game. And if that goes up and he's able to sustain the number, like the thirty six percent front three, that is a really good news for OKC. Yeah, I'd like to see him shoot more. And I, I, you know, it's funny. Everybody always says like, oh, they don't use Stephen Adams enough, and now you know they'll use Stephen and he'll score more. If if Shea outscores Stephen, I think that's okay. Um, what I'd like to see, uh, is some more, I'd like to see a little more of Steven Adams, you know, at the free throw line with the ball and some guys kind of cutting off him and just see what that offense looks like a little, um, mm-hmm. that's something they were never really going to do when they had Westbrook and certainly not Westbrook and Paul George. Um, but I'd be intrigued to see what it would look like. I think he's effective at that and we've seen it in little stretches. Um, but if you had guys who could play off him, I would like to see them do a little of that. And so that might mean that Steven is a more effective offensive player without necessarily scoring a little more if they did some of that stuff and if it worked. Yeah. And this also means that you have you need to have someone who cuts. And this is something that right. I, I right. look forward to see uh, in, in Shea's development. Because as, as, I, as I was saying before, like if you can like teach Shea how to be an effective shooting guard and that doesn't mean just being able to shoot but also to cut to curl on screens to read um the, the game off ball and this was something that I don't think he did way too much uh in in Los Angeles last season and so that is a part of his game that I want to see growing uh, and maybe we'll see Andre Robertson coming back and he was very good in cutting Yep. And I think that's that's a place where and this might not necessarily matter with Steven on the floor, mm-hmm. uh, but that is a place where Hamadou Diallo needs oh, to yeah. be good yeah. because he, he is pretty good. He showed some flashes of that. Now, cutting didn't really matter a whole lot in their offense last year because you weren't necessarily going to get the ball off of cutting. But Hami is a good cutter and needs to be because his offense obviously is limited in other places. He's going to have to do some of that if he wants to make it. Yeah, and he also need um, he needs to play good defense against bigger guys because this is something that both for yes. him and Ferguson will be extremely important to get minutes at the small forward because I don't see them getting a ton of minutes at the shooting guard. Position. Right, and that's something I think both those guys are capable of doing, and yeah. it's something that you've got you definitely have to see more of out of Hami. So, last question, um, Clark Germain. Ross' departure will dramatically impact the team culture. Well, we also lost Mark Bryant, uh, our big coach. Should the Thunder hire Nick or Perk to backfill and to maintain work ethic and toughness? Without Ross's leadership, who will organize summer workouts? So I left this question as the last one because I think that one of the bigger part of, of Ross's departure is, in fact, uh, how the team will change in terms of leadership, in terms of um, how much the coach will have a say in how they play on the court. And with CP3 here, I have no idea about how um, how a leader he will be in the locker room, how vocal he will be on the court, how much this will be Chris Paul basketball or Billy Donovan's. Yeah, I think it's a fair question because one, we don't know I think Chris will come here and I, I don't know Chris Paul at all. I've had maybe one, I've asked him one or two questions. I don't know him. Never really talked to him. Two more to me. I, I suspect he will come here um, looking to play his way out of here. So I expect he will be very engaged. I expect he will say all the right stuff. I expect he will play well and try to set a good example and all that. But I don't know how invested he is in being a leader of a team that he's probably not going to be with 
for the long haul. So his leadership side of things, I'm really interested. I don't know. I think Shea Gildas Alexander has some of that in him. Um, mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, leadership is, is a, is a thing that in talking to people who knew him in college, uh, that they, they gravitated to him, that he really was a guy who, you know, if, if you see, he had a very bad game, his last game at Kentucky, but prior to that, that was a very flawed Kentucky team that won eight out of 10 games because he played exceptionally well down the stretch. He was really good. And those guys kind of followed him. He lifted them up a little bit. And I think that will be a big part of, of, you know, his impact going forward is that he will be a leader. I do think he's a guy who will kind of get guys together and that sort of thing. Steven Adams has a role to play there as well. He's kind of the holdover guy culturally. He's played a lot and has been involved in this. Um, but I also think this is this is where we learn what Billy Donovan wants to be as a coach mm-hmm. and how effective he is at being what he wants to be and getting a team to play the way he wants to play. So any chances that we see Nick in the coaching staff, I think? I don't think so. I talked to Nick in uh, at he was at Summer League. I still don't think he's at a stage of his life where he really wants to do this. And we didn't talk extensively about it. He told me uh, he was going to get my job instead. He thought writing seemed like a good path for him. So uh, I don't think he's yep. actually going to do that either. I think he's enjoying time with his family. I don't think he wants the day-to-day grind of a coaching job. Mm-hmm. I also don't think Kendrick Perkins wants that right now. I think he's pursuing the, the television side of it more so than that side of it. Now, if an offer comes along, maybe Perk would change his mind on that. Um, but like they mentioned Mark Bryant specifically, and Mark's done really good work with the big guys. That's That was a big part of his job. Um, Dave Bliss, who coached the Summer League team, kind of was the developmental coach who worked. He was the player development coach who worked with Mark Bryant with those guys. Wouldn't be shocked based on the fact that he got the summer league coaching job. Wouldn't be shocked if maybe they move him into a full-time position. I don't know that, but like logically they might want to do that given that that's also his area of expertise. He's been an assistant before uh, with the Knicks and he's on his second stint here and is, is I think a pretty well-liked guy here. So that might be a guy to keep an eye on for that position. Um, and then the rest of the coaching staff, you know, we'll see. Yeah, I mean, we'll see. We'll see uh, is something that w- we will say a lot in the yeah. in the next yes. two months because we have basically no idea how this uh, Thunder team will look like in uh, September. But I'm sure that we will be here uh, to talk about this. So uh, I want to thank you, Brett, because I mean, I was going to do uh, a solo one and I really enjoyed this podcast with you. So please plug your stuff. I know that you are that you have a big piece coming. Yeah, I got a good. Uh, what, well, I hope I shouldn't say it's good. That's for other people to judge. But it I have a, I have I'm a shake. <laughs> I have a shake. You'll just Alexander story coming this week, um, and then we will be doing kind of. I think uh, athletic wide, we'll be kind of looking at our team's rotations and how minutes might break down and that sort of stuff uh, sometime in the next week or so. So hopefully people can check that out. And if you haven't checked out the other stuff that's that's been up there, go to theathletic.com. It's all there. People should definitely, if you're going to go check out one thing, and if you haven't subscribed to the athletic and you just want something to read. Um, we did a round table with uh, myself, Darno Mayberry, Anthony Slater, and Fred Katz. We're so fortunate to have three guys besides me who have covered the thunder and now work at the athletic. And we kind of looked back at the Russell Westbrook era, uh, looked ahead a little bit about, about how Russ might fit in Houston and just kind of what all of this means for this franchise kind of moving into its second decade. So that is a pretty cool piece. If people want to check it out. It is a good piece. Um, uh, I read it all and it was great. Uh, thank you again, Brad. And thank to you uh, to for all the questions that you sent over. And we will talk to you next Monday. And on Wednesday, you will have Andrew and all the cakes. 